0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.
1: Hi, I'm your host Roberto Mazza and this is Jerusalem Unplugged. In this podcast, we not only explore the fascinating history, politics, society and incredible people of Jerusalem, but also unravel how the city plays a significant role on the global stage. Join me in uncovering the multifaceted stories that make Jerusalem a captivating force that resonates worldwide. Today, my guest is... Geoffrey Levin. Geoffrey wrote a book, Our Palestine Question, Israel and American Jewish Descent, 1948-1978, published by Yale University Press in 2023. This is a new history of American Jewish relationship with Israel, which focuses on its most urgent and sensitive issue, the question of Palestinian rights. American Jews began debating Palestinian rights issues even before Israel's founding in 1948. Jeffrey Levin recovers the voices of American Jews who, in the early decades of Israel's existence, called for an honest reckoning with the moral and political plight of Palestinians. These now forgotten voices, which include an aid worker turned academic, with Palestinian Sephardic roots, in fact from Jerusalem itself, a former Yiddish journalist, anti-Zionist reform rabbis and young left-wing Zionist activists felt drawn to support Palestinian rights by their understanding of Jewish history, identity and ethics. They sometimes worked with mainstream American Jewish leaders who feared that ignoring Palestinian rights could foster antisemitism, leading them to press Israeli officials for reform. But Israeli diplomats viewed any American Jewish interest in Palestinian affairs with their suspicions, provoking a series of quiet confrontations that ultimately kept Palestinian rights off the American Jewish agenda up to the present era. But before we delve into all of this, first things first, Jeff, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Roberto. So, just to kick off, can you tell us something about yourself? and the origins of this book? Sure. Well,
2: I started my PhD program really interested in diplomatic studies, US-Israel stuff, and intended uh, to write something on that level. but, you know, when you're living in New York, the best archives around are the American Jewish uh, related archives. And so I was taking a class my first year with Professor Hillel Cohen, who was visiting from Hebrew University and uh, about, you know, Palestinian citizens of Israel. And I was curious, could I write something archival? Um, and, you know, there's no diplomatic files. You know, there weren't uh, uh, Israeli uh, uh state archive files online back then but i could walk down the street and see what american jewish groups um were doing in response to the military government issues um restrictions on arab citizens of israel and very easily as a first-year phd student i found really fascinating stuff um, about how the uh leaders of the american jewish committee were going and confronting ben-gurion and studying the issue Um, and so I really went into this as someone interested in diplomacy, someone interested in uh, Israel, Palestine, not as an American Jewish historian. And I think you can kind of see a grow out of that, a very source focused project. Um, And I sort of jumped into the field of American Jewish history as
1: time went on. And We must say that uh, the field of American Jewish history is uh, um, complex to say the least. Uh, I, as a person that didn't know much when i first moved to america i made the point to try to read Amer- american jewish history and and you mentioned a number of those works in your book and uh, i guess i i had one very limited a sort of a tunnel vision uh, you know later on i was able to make more reading but i had the sense that there was one narrative and that was the dominant one now had this book been published in a different historical context, it would have been certainly controversial and debated in many ways. However, the very fact that it has been published in a post-October 7 world, your book has become central in the understanding, at least in my view, of the history of American Jews and their complex relations with the state of Israel and Zionism. Can you talk about the general outlook of the book, its goals, And also, you know, give us a sense of the uh, previous literature on this topic.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, Well, I'd say the book sort of does three big things. One is it shows that, you know, American Jewish um, debates and engagement and, um, you know, uh, conflicted views go back not to the 70s or not just the past 10 years, um, but back to nineteen forty-eight about Palestinians, about uh, about Israel. Uh, there's this idea that this is something new that this generation or the you know nineteen sixty generation suddenly broke. Um, with uh, Jewish, American Jewish past and uh, in terms of um, being troubled by some of these uh, issues as policies. And I show no, there's American Jews who are deeply involved with Palestinian rights issues from 1948, even beforehand. Um, so doing that is a basic service to, you know, the field, considering there's been like Little to no literature on on that, and a lot of the people I write about. Um, I also show kind of why uh, there this this uh, these conversations didn't break out and become higher in American Jewish discourse. Um, so a second thing I do is really highlight the role of state actors, especially Israeli diplomats, in pushing against any sort of um, public engagement with Palestinian rights issues, highlighting and even in. Um, not very, po- ways that shouldn't have been that provocative, um, but they really sort of wanted to advance a specific narrative. Um, and a third uh, really uh, relevant highlight, and I didn't push this as enough, I think, as a central message of the book, is um, uh, the history of uh, historicization of the completion of anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism, which is this sort of arc that goes through these chapters on the American Jewish Committee, especially chapter four, um, and shows sort of, you know, it, it wasn't the case that American leading American Jewish organizations consider anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism. I, I do my best in the book and in some related articles um, to show how that, that went about happening. Um, so obviously these are very related to things that are going on now everything and everyone's feelings are a lot more intense um but it's you know I, I see you know 10 news uh, pieces a day that just kind of um, that my book relates to the history and, and backstory of these things so um you know everything's uh everything's more intense right now and and obviously I've been working on this project um since 2014 uh, essentially and I, I couldn't have imagined it coming out at a at Such a challenging time for, for and terrible time for everyone.
1: We will talk about later the question of diplomacy, but also the questions of uh, the the campuses in America and their relations with your question of anti-Semitism and. Uh, pro-israel pro-palestinian support but i guess for readers who are not familiar with that uh, you know this discourse seems to be just a contemporary issue but you point out in the book that really goes back uh, the 1950s so it is a fascinating conversation that the media today seems to portray as something that just is happening now but the reality is that is going on for decades uh, so as I said, we'll talk about that later because I think it's a you know, very important point to uh, unpack. Now, I want to go back to the structure of the book. And so while discussing the sources used, could you also start introducing uh, the main characters in some of your organizations uh, that you are discussing uh, in your book? Yes, um, it's a
2: very person focused uh, book. I really like highlighting the stories of people and people that uh, most people haven't heard of. So um, the first five chapters really sort of have a main character or two. And those chapters are sort of pre-67 or through 67. The last chapter is the 70s, where there's a huge number of people, uh, some who are featured. But, um, you know, there aren't a ton of people engaging with Palestinian rights rights at the time. So I can engage Uh, and get into these stories. So um, the first person and kind of main character is a guy named Don Peretz. He's born in Baltimore, but his father um, is a Sephardic uh, Jerusalem uh, born uh, Zionist uh, who who fled um, uh, uh, Ottoman Palestine during World War I. Um, And he is, I'll get into him more, but he's a pacifist oriented person. Who studies at hebrew university and um, you know, ends up volunteering to help palestinians who are displaced in 48 and works for the american jewish committee so he's sort of and, and later is involved in basically every sort of um, initiative to study or deal with palestinian rights during this period because he writes the first dissertation on palestinians um, a counter a second sort of major figure is a man named Fayez sayeg who's born in the same year as parrots 1922 and he's um, someone who I think far too few people in Palestinian studies know about. Um, he, uh, I highlight sort of this un, un, understudied, almost totally understudied period where he's leading American sort of pro-Arab uh, uh, rhetoric as the chief spokesman for the Arab League in, in the US um, and sort of all these sort of Arab, um, you know, the, the pro-Arab rhetoric um, is sort of the background to the, uh, to the American sort of Jewish initiatives related to this. Um, another figure is William Zuckerman, who is a former Yiddish journalist who writes sort of the most outspoken newspaper, a, a Jewish newspaper called the Jewish Newsletter in the 50s about this, uh, about dealing with Israel critically. Um, uh, another person in Chapter 3, a number of leading figures in the American Jewish Committee are highlighted, especially a man named James Marshall, who is the son of Lewis Marshall, one of the most important figures in american jewish history he's very interested in trying to address arab civil rights in israel um almer berger who is a bit more well known is the the sort of main figure in chapter five um, and he is a uh, anti-zionist rabbi of reform uh background um and there's a number of other figures too, sort of on the left coming out of 67 norton mesvinsky chomsky i mentioned and then in the last chapter i get into a number of people fortunately some of them women <laughs> like aviva cantor like sharon rose um like ellen siegel uh at a time when there's a lot more people engaging with these issues after 67 war
1: so let's start with uh Don Peretz. Don Peretz is a fascinating figure, and as you mentioned, his father is a Jerusalemite that uh, uh, managed to escape uh, Jerusalem at the outset of World War I. And he's a fascinating character associated with the ACJ, and we're going to talk about this organization uh, later. And he was a critic of Israel, a non-Zionist, which is a very interesting definition. And he was interested, as you mentioned, in the question of uh, Palestinian refugees. Uh, Perhaps it's worth mentioning that since 1948, the Israeli government engaged in an intense war against the possibility for Palestinians to return. And as we know, this has been some sort of a common policy ever since. So let's start from Don Peretz. Can you elaborate more on this uh, character? Yeah, so his father's,
2: his mother's Ashkenazi American Jew. His father came to the, uh, this country only a few years before he's born, uh, friendly with Henry Rizzold, he his father. Anyway, um, he gets very inspired by pacifism. He serves as a non-combatant in, in Okinawa in World War II, and he's inspired by Judah Magnus and, and, and Martin Buber. So he actually uses the GI Bill to study at Hebrew University um, from 1946 to 1948 um, because of Magnus. And when he's there, he gets super inspired by Zionism initially in 46, 47. Um, but then when war breaks out, he's extremely conflicted. Um, he doesn't like what's happening. He doesn't like the rhetoric. He's, you know, very binationalist oriented. Um, a dramatic, you know, almost Forrest Gump-like story in terms of meeting Begin and all these other figures. Um, but anyway, he leaves and then he comes back in 49. Uh, to volunteer with the Quaker organization, the American Friends Service Committee, which is active in helping refugees mostly in Gaza, but also internally displaced um, Palestinians who become citizens of Israel later in the Galilee and northern Israel. So he spends most of 1949. It's probably the only American Jew who's volunteered to spend it's like seven, eight months of his life helping displaced Palestinian Arabs. Um, and he leaves, um, in late 49 because he wants to study this issue seriously. He's, he's not an anti-Zionist by this point, he's pretty unhappy with with, with how Zionism has turned out. Um, but he writes the first dissertation um, on the topic. And he, you know, meets the Mufti in Cairo. He studies in Beirut. He goes and, and he, he, he studies back in in Israel. And he's really trying to do what he views as objective work. So we look at someone who's, someone who's critical of Israel, but he's not someone who's public. He views him in this role primarily as a scholar to, to see how, if it's possible to, you know, um, address the Palestinian refugee issue. Um, And the American Jewish Committee, again, which is at this time in the 50s, the most politically influential American Jewish organization. It's not the most popular. Um, It considers itself um, non-Zionist, which is supportive of Israel, but not uh, not supportive of the notion of Jewish nationalism. So they're very conflicted about these issues because they consider themselves to be, a this is AJC, um, a human rights organization, uh, a pro-American organization, and they're trying to be in certain ways neutral. And they also feel that um, pro-Arab sort of taking up of these issues um, and the unresolved conflict is bad for American Jews, it's bad for anti-Semitism, so they hire parrots um, to create a Palestinian refugee relief initiative, an interfaith thing, and they announce it. It's not about right of return, um, but it it infuriates Israeli diplomats. Uh, They don't feel American Jews should um, really be discussing this in a way that they're not really handling that American Jews shouldn't have an independent opinion on these issues. Um, and so it gets tabled and there's pressure to fire parrots and they you know, don't fire him initially. They have him do other things for a long time. Um, but then his book comes out, his book's coming out. And he sends it to uh, you know, uh, the guy, Israeli diplomat in New York, a guy whose name happens to be Yaakov Morris, <laughs> father of Benny Morris. So I have this letter from Benny Morris's dad, who's just very unhappy about this first book about Palestinian refugee issues, which doesn't even you know, get far in the surface and Paris ultimately gets pushed out because of that. Um, so that's kind of the first chapter. He's involved sort of behind the scenes in all these other sort of other chapters. Uh, of the book because he's sort of the senior figure, he's again a leading scholar, he's trying to deal with this issue um, in what he views as an objective humanistic way. Um, working for the American Jewish Committee, he's involved with this Ra, which we'll talk about. He's friends with anti zionists even though he never calls himself an anti-Zionist. Um, so he's kind of, I open up with his life story, which has never been covered. He's, he's mostly unknown outside of being a scholar in the field, um, who was active at SUNY, um, and and author of a textbook that's pretty well known, was well known.
1: As you just said, Peretz is a figure that becomes a liminal figure, like somehow, Uh, Very important, but also disconnected with uh, major narratives about uh, American Jews. And so I was wondering if you can speak a little bit about the oppositions against parents, because I think this is what gives them agency and it becomes very important. And that can highlight the emergence of various forms of control, shall we say, uh, implemented by Israeli officials in the country and abroad. And I was wondering if you could also say why Israeli officials opposed almost any form of criticism coming from American Jews as early as 1948, essentially.
2: Yeah. I've always been so interested in this period, the 50s, um, which is most of the books really about the 50s, um, because you don't know how things will go. Like, it's so new for American Jews that the state exists. It's so new, they don't even really understand much about the refugee problem. They really don't understand what life is like for Arabs uh, living in Israel uh, after 48. Um, American foreign policy, it's not clear if they're, if they're going to ha- have this special relationship with Israel. Uh, the Eisenhower administration really wants a strong relationship with Nasser, which is sort of why the CIA is involved in this story as well. Um, but uh, look, this is a time when the American Jewish community was especially important for Israel. Um, Israel needs Great funding to absorb all these migrants from Jewish um, Jews making Aliyah, or whatever term you want, to use, from from Arab countries and from other countries. Um, Israel needs it doesn't know how Washington's going to go. It's not receiving the support it would. So um, Israel doesn't know if there's going to be strong international pressure f- to have partial. I don't think there's any seriousness about full refugee return, but partial, you know, this is something that the Truman administration, Eisenhower administration, that was quite reasonable for X number of refugees to be returned in the context of I wouldn't say quite a full peace deal, but in terms of alleviating the Arab-Israeli conflict, so everything's more intense um, in certain ways in terms of the uncertainty. You know, we we sort of know how the American-Israel relationship went from the sixties onward, but not a lot of people understand how fraught and uncertain things are, or really how you know deep and how confusing Israel's creation is for. Even American Zionists who um, really aren't sure uh, if they're in a hierarchical relationship with Israeli diplomats or when they didn't used to be. So it's a very, um, there's so many interesting questions after 48 that people haven't looked at, um, scholars haven't looked at as much as I think they should have, or until I guess
1: I am. (laughs) Others are too uh, right now, Matt
2: Berkman, Marjorie Feld, others.
1: Let's now talk about uh, the other character, William Zuckerman, who was certainly a bigger figure uh, than Peretz, at least in terms of audience. He was uh, very open in his opposition to uh, Zionist, particularly uh, the revisionist form of Zionism, which he called a fascist organization, essentially. And he equally acknowledged what later uh, new historians call the culpability of Israel in relation to the Palestinian refugees, which is interesting that you can find early example of what the new historians, many Morris being one of them, later on, you know, went into the archives and find out. Why did Sukerman become a problem in American Jewish history? Because this was my perception that he became a problem, not just was he, what he was saying, but also himself. Is a figure,
2: yeah. no, he's he's a public. He's a, he's very different than Peretz. He's you know born in 1885 in Russia. He comes over to Chicago when he's 15. Um, he, be, he becomes a Yiddish journalist. He spends time in Europe. Um, a chunk of his career in Europe. And while it's pretty clear why people haven't written about Don Peretz in Jewish American Jewish studies, this is someone who's publishing as an established figure throughout from 48 to 61. This You know fairly decently circulated uh a publication called the jewish newsletter so he he switches to english in 1948 he was long skeptical of especially revisionist zionism which he calls fascist in 1934 so we're not even talking you know uh we're talking early (laughs) um uh but he doesn't call himself anti-zionist in 48 he um feels like he wants to engage with these issues uh, Critically, and he has this mission of this basically one man operation uh, to sort of become the place where people can talk about the tough issues um, related to Israel, whether that's the role of Yiddish and Israel's sort of policies, which are not helpful to Yiddish, which matters to him, Israel's policies toward its non Jewish citizens, toward um, lots of Jewish Jews, toward uh, the Palestinian refugees, and he's just feels like he's not a super ideological person, um, and he feels like these are are serious issues that need to be discussed. So um, he's publishing not just this magazine, but um, he's in syndicated um, uh, throughout the country. I, I can't really tell you how many American Jewish publications published him, but regularly in sort of Boston and Philadelphia and I'm sure other major um Jews, new sources, and again, this is a time when it's not clear what American Jews' position should be. In '49, do you just follow what Israel's saying? Do we have like our own autonomy, or like is it a problem? And Zionists, you know, aren't really sure what to do about him because he's not like hyper anti-Zionist in these at this time in this in these publications. Um, and ultimately, it's Israeli diplomats who push him out, like tell the Zionists, okay, actually, your job, the Zionist leader, is to like. Make him like not be published so much, and so he's super upset about this. There's these kind of quiet campaigns, and um, you know, I just looked through Israeli diplomatic files on this, and it was actually an easy chapter to write because they just had files on him, um, and they thought he was an issue, and so um, I don't know why he really isn't covered much, um, before again, he's pushing against the grain, um, but he's writing and still having an audience, even though it's more limited until he dies in 1961. Um, again, like a lot of non-Jews and, and sort of Jewish intellectuals are reading him, um, even when he becomes sort of sidelined from the mainstream. Um,
1: let's now talk about, uh, the American Jewish committee. So this is the organizations that you have been discussing throughout the book the most, there are a few others, but certainly yeah. this is very okay. central to your narrative. So you gave us some basic information earlier, and I was wondering if you can now elaborate on its origins and particularly on its ideology. And perhaps it's worth mentioning the uh, Pittsburgh platform of 1885, which at least in America, and you know, for those that would adhere to this uh, statement, declared that the Jews are no longer a nation, but in a religious community. And so I was also wondering if you can explain this, because there's always a bit of a confusion, particularly amongst uh, the non-Jewish populations, you know, about this dichotomy nation and religious community.
2: Yeah, so, you know, American Jewish community uh, in the, around the turn of the century, there's this established, more established Central European American Jewish community who has come, uh, you know, Reform Judaism has become predominant. Um, And they sort of feel like the the path forward is integration. It's, you know, changing Judaism. It's understanding Judaism as a religion, not a nation, not a people. And, um, you know, rabbis articulate that in 1885. Um, And the people who found this American Jewish community in 1906 are sort of elites, largely reformed Jews who have that opinion. Um, But throughout this period from 1880s to the 1920s, there's this huge... Number of Jews coming in from Eastern Europe, um, the American Jewish Committee is founded to aid them, sort of in in Russia, um, uh, uh, as well as in the United States, and to combat anti-Semitism here and abroad. It's sort of this first, really American Jewish. The longest existing really American Jewish advocacy group, and there's many. And, um, you know, they're not, a lot of the Eastern Europeans are more interested in Zionism or socialism, and that's really not their thing. They consider themselves non-Zionist. So, you know, they're the type of organization that'll call itself or would call itself very non-ideological. And of course, there's no such thing as being non-ideological. They're sort of more liberal, integrationist, um, in their ideas. Um, the, the solution to the Jewish problem, um, you know, for Zionism is Israel, is migration there. Um, for them, it's, and, and Jewish nationalism, for them, it's um, America. It's it's um, becoming a full citizen um, who's uh, in a home country, like America, who's not different than the neighbors, except they go to, you know, temple on Saturday instead of church, or maybe on Sunday, or instead of church on Sunday. So they're sort of embraced sort of uh, classic versions of American liberalism. And um, Zionism doesn't quite fit, but, you know, they are an international Jewish rights organization. And so they find a way to, like, support, be non-Zionist, but support... Institutions like the Hebrew University, which they consider apolitical, and so they find these, quote, apolitical ways to help the Yishuv and uh, Jewish institutions. Um, but Zionism at the time is much more ideological than we think about it now, and they're not sort of signed on to this deep ideological package of Jewish nationhood. Um, they think it's a threat to uh, American Jewish loyalty to the United States, and I think they both believe in that idea, and I think they also are concerned about anti-Semitism. So, um some of its leaders are anti-Zionist through the into the 40s, um, but uh, when push comes to shove and Israel's moving forward, um, they you know back it, um, and they're kind of outliers in some ways, in that they're just so into this non zionist uh, message, but, you know, a lot of Jewish organizations didn't call themselves Zionist during this time period because Zionism meant something much more robust than it does now. Now it's just like Zionism and pro-Israelism and American discourse are considered more or less the same. Um, back then they, they they felt there was non-Zionist, like not signing on to, to what Ben-Gurion would say is like, because they're not making Aliyah, you know? Um, so they're, they're grappling with these tough questions about what Israel's creation means for American Jews. What's the proper way of dealing with it? What's the relationship between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism? And obviously these are huge questions that they have to deal with, and it's not settled, you know, the day after Israel's created. And that's, this is actually a lot of what the book's about. I have this sort of three-chapter arch, one with parrots, um, with with um, them going to Israel and, you know, trying to push Ben-Gurion to lift restrictions and liberalize the approach toward, um, you know, quote, Israeli Arabs. Um, and then I have this uh, chapter, which they're engaging with Faya Saig, and the, these questions of of anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism. So, um again they're the biggest organization half the book is kind of dealing with them um and because they're also the most politically influential group at the time with connections in washington even though they're not as popular as as some other groups amongst american jews
1: so i want to ask about a couple of things here first of all how did the agc so the american jewish Committee, looked and the Palestinians, particularly those uh, in Israel post-1948. And perhaps you also can tell us a little bit more about what happened to the committee, how did uh, eventually disappear from uh, sort of the uh, constellation of other American Jewish organizations.
2: Yeah, so, you know, they go on 49 to Israel as leaders, and I think a lot of things are unresolved, and they're not that tuned in. Um, and so... You know, I think for the American Jewish Jews in general, a lot of times, uh, you know, uh, the idea is that things will be temporary. So there are restrictions on Arabs living who remain in Israel after 48, but it's viewed as temporary. And it doesn't really come up as that big of a thing in the early 50s. But then Arab groups and other Christian, including a CIA-backed <laughs> um, uh, pro-Arab groups, are, are talking about... Israel's restrictions against Arabs, you know, Kafr Qasim uh massacre of Israeli Arabs happens in 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 56. And so it's something they can't ignore. And so when it's something they can't ignore, they have to deal with it because okay, they talk about liberal integration, they're talking about equal rights for all citizens in America, of Jews in other countries like Morocco and Russia, I mean Soviet Union. And so like, okay, what do they have to say about this? And so, it's not something that they're eager eager to approach. But once it's on the sort of national discourse, they have to have a position on it, and they don't uh, believe in just taking on a position that should be just like, okay, let's call up the Israeli diplomat. What should we say about this? Not not everyone there, um, and so they try and figure out what we're doing. What are we saying? We need to like talk to Ben Gurion, like change the policies um and so they they deal with this um and what i think and they don't really have a lot of success and they they do fall to certain pushback and lack of responsiveness um but what i really think happens is that america becomes much more of a pro-israel place in the late 50s and the 60s and so they're not as concerned about anti-semitism from american christians and the right um And they're also sensitive to the fact that with movies like Exodus coming out, with Israel becoming more of a part of American Judaism, that more and more American Jews, um, you know, don't like critics, even if they don't label as anti-Semitic. Uh, they don't like criticism of Israel. They, they expect Jewish organizations to deal with it. And so they're kind of dealing, it, things kind of fade because of stuff from below. Um, and even more after 67, when there's sort of this, this huge celebration of Israel. But there's a gradual story too. I think until now, like so much has been saying, okay, 48 happens, American Jew- Jewish groups change. Oh, 67 happens, everything changes then. And you know, influenced by a lot of people who've been studying this this period in American Jewish, history and Palestinian history, I show this is a very complicated time and that things are being processed. Um, so they end up becoming pretty much indistinguishable in these questions from other groups really after 67. They stop calling themselves non-Zionist. It's never like they um, announce it. They But like basically on their material, like letterhead publications, they often say non-Zionist and then just kind of disappears after the 67 war. So it's it's all very quiet and subtle story. And that's sort of why it hasn't been told so much and why, you know, I have a book that deals with actually very, you know, quiet, you know, small nuanced issues.
1: As we say, the devil is in the details. And I think those are very important when you deal with uh, certain publications. Let's move ahead and uh You mentioned a myth which is very common and many Americans like many others around the world would have believed that Palestine was an empty lens for a people without a lens. But many organizations and individuals, including Fayez Sayeg, and we're going to talk about him, um, himself a Palestinian, fought back against these kinds of myths. And so could you start talking about uh, Sayeg and why he was feared? by so many Jewish organization and Israeli's officials to the point that they stage campaigns against it. Yeah, the, the pre-'67
2: history of sort of pro-Palestine discourse in this country, uh, like in history has been in America, has just, this is kind of the first, one of the few stabs at my work. I mean, there's a few other scholars of Arab American history and other, but there hasn't been much written on that. And that's because there's not a ton. There's some Arab American, uh, and there's Arab American historians who've done great work. Um, But there's uh, there's stuff happening in the 30s of Arab American groups, and then 48 happens, and there's some Arab state-sponsored stuff, and it all sort of falls apart when Israel is created. And so, um, going into the 50s, there's like very little pro-Palestine, pro-like people highlighting Palestinian Arabs. And Faisal is um, is father's Syrian; he was born in Syria. His mother's Palestinian. He grew up in Tiberias to a family of really great scholars. Uh, who pe- his brothers, including him, has became great scholars. Studied at American University of Beirut and is doing his PhD at Georgetown when you know 48 the Nakba happens. So, he g- he gets his PhD. He's a stateless person. Um, and he um gets involved with this this, uh, you know, some Arab diplomatic legations in advocating for uh, Arab causes, Arab national causes, not just Palestinian stuff. Um, And it gets uh, a big platform by this group called American Friends of the Middle East, which is this sort of seems like a Christian pro-Arab group, but it's really sponsored by the CIA. I mean, it's also people, the people leading it, you know, uh, were genuine in our convictions, but um, it's, uh, you know, a really interesting footnote in American uh, Middle East policy. Um, but ultimately, he um, is emerging in the early, in the mid-50s as the most articulate and active um, uh, Arab voice on all these issues. And so when um, the Arab League wants to open its information office, so the counterpoint to Israel's Merkasa Hezbollah, um in new york the, uh, the arab league secretary general has him set it up um he's not be, he's not given the job of director he becomes a deputy to someone who's not very good at his job um who goes on medical leave and so um for a year during the uh 56 war He is the acting director of the Arab League's information project, and he is extremely articulate. He's going, uh, he's tireless, despite his, um, he has a serious heart issue, and is going on these insane tours of the U.S., and is meeting with journalists. And he is by far the person who is talking about Arab issues, including Palestinian issues, um, and, uh, you know, uh, they call him the Arab Ibn. Some of his uh, people who is sort of the the Arabic equivalent of Abu Um and uh, he is accused of anti-Semitism by the ADL, and he says, "Look, we look at my material. I don't have anything that's anti-Semitic. Jews are this, Zionists are that," and he says, "But you know who doesn't distinguish between Jews and and and, and Zionists and Israelis is Ben Gurion. Look at this quote from him." And so. Um, you know, and this is on the radio and, um, you know, he's saying a national radio, basically. And uh, it alarms the AJC and uh, they say they go to Ben-Gurion and trying to get him to change what he's saying again. This is constant goes up and they meet with him. Um, and uh, the leaders of the American Jewish Committee meet with him to try and hammer out these issues. Um, and they don't think he's anti-Semitic, um, even though he's very anti-Zionist and pro-Arab. Um, But, again, over the course of the next few years, they have to deal with the grassroots, the fact that, um, you know, even though he's not anti-Semitic, the stuff that he's saying critical of Israel is not good for Jews, because Jews are pro-Israel. And so, in Chapter 4, you have this story of people who, a lot of these people, I think, are, you know, we can say they're well-meaning, Syed. I mean, I don't know his personal views, but he's trying not to say anything anti-Semitic, he's trying not to be accused of anti-Semitism, you know, the AJC people are trying not to accuse him of anything that he's not doing, um, but ultimately they sort of come around to the American Jewish consensus that, you know, this is something we need to act about. Uh, you know, this is, these American Jewish organizations ultimately take up the role of defending Israel, but they don't, aren't, they don't view that as part of their purview Im- immediately. Um, so when does, you know, the AJC, the ADL, other groups start feeling like their job isn't just defending American Jews, it's also defending Israel. And this is sort of the quiet shift into that uh, that I tell in this chapter.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
1: Perhaps taken out of, uh, you know, your book, uh, but do you think could be this also the moment where American politics begun, you know, to get closer to Israel than before? Because you mentioned in the book, and we know historically that not necessarily this relationship between Israel and America has always been so tight. And I was wondering if, if you read of this particular moment in Jewish history it can also be connected to American politics at large? Oh, definitely. You know,
2: I, I, I'm a S- Salim Yakub Melanie McAllister, um, Amy Kaplan, lot, uh, all, all these scholars of U.S. Middle East, either cultural diplomacy influenced me a lot. Um, and they all go hand in hand. You know, this is the moment, again, uh, Eisenhower has high hopes for Nasser and then gives up on Nasser, and then there's flirtation, you know, certain flirtations. And so that's, influences American policy and things go hand in hand with culture. (laughs) And so there's all this is happening in like 56, 57, 58. There's this kind of roller coaster period. And I could tell my story ignoring that. It wouldn't make much sense without these big picture things. But that explains why this is this period of great debate on these issues. And, and, And there ends up you know, as we get in the Kennedy administration, especially Johnson, like just a great, uh, sort of special relationship as we you know it, the affinity for Israel in American Judaism and amongst American Christians really solidifies, Um, you know, I don't want to overemphasize the book and film Exodus, which were huge blockbusters in sort of telling the American, Americanizing the Israeli story, but I think it embodies sort of a shift in mentality that's happening right at this time. So I think Israel is sort of this, for the first decade, it's not unpopular, but it's this weird thing that like, Jewish state exists, like how do we deal with that? And, in the next decade from 58 to 67-ish, like it's becoming something that's more big in American Jewish culture and American culture and more positive. And then 67 happens and it sort of gets hyper done. But that whole story, that whole 48 to 67 uh, uh, trajectory often gets is, is neglected by many historian, you know, historians up until till now. I mean, not everyone, <laughs> Emily Katz, a lot. but in, in terms of until relatively recently.
1: Now, you mentioned earlier Chapter 4, and um, this is a very interesting chapter and in discussion. Uh, this this chapter is dedicated essentially to anti-Semitism, an issue that unfortunately doesn't seem to have uh, evolved much since the events discussed in the book. For instance, accusations that university campuses harbor anti-Semites are similar whether made in the 1950s or today. Obviously, there's a lot of... Uh, differences in uh, the political discourse, but the accusation is very similar. Can you give us a sense of how anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism came to be blended together? Because once again, this is not just a contemporary discourse, but it is one that goes back decades. And I would also like you to mention uh, Eliyahu Epstein, perhaps an unknown figure for many, but a very important one in uh, sort of uh, setting the tone uh, in this discourse and his work, which I believe has misinformed the public for generations to come. Okay, so there are, there are lots of big things. So um, first,
2: I wish I included stuff more from my article I published in an Arab Studies journal, which deals with Arab student activism. It overlaps with the book, but there's also more there on this question. So it's 57, the first time like, Arab student groups, which are anti-Zionist, are criticized publicly in the New York Times by the ADL. And soon after, you have a congressman who's calling on Arab students to be expelled uh you know investigated at, least, at the very least and so this is fifty seven, fifty eight. again this time period and i don't i can't find anything like that's that big of a deal before then um and i don't think anyone else has really been you know uh, one other person or one or two other scholars have been dealing with this but it's not been really out that much so um it happens though they're not they're not saying investigate them because they're anti-semites they're saying investigate them because they're a problem for American Cold War interests. So, um, and that's a really important distinction. So, the ADL is actually criticizing these groups not because they're anti-Semitic, sometimes because they feel like these groups will fuel anti-Semitism through through anti-Semites will use the criticism of Israel to advance their. But they're not saying anti-Zionism anti-Semitism anti semit anti-Zionism is bad for America in the Cold War, which again looks at the right-left issues football today. Um, and they're saying. Um, they're saying sometimes that, OK, anti-Zionism is this, and it's going to be used against Jews because far right wing anti-Semites are using, you know, some of this Arab material, even though uh, to, to make a case against Jews. Um, and so NADL and other groups make a lot of that, which, you know, isn't, isn't relevant. Um, so it's very interesting. And in, I kind of trace things in this book and a couple other articles that I've written. um, In the 30s, basically, even though some American Jews from early on do think anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism, the establishment does not before World War II. Um, and that seems pretty clear to me in the 30s. Um, and there's a lot to unpack there, and I've, you know, you can look at my, my, my article on this. And then World War II happens, you know, the, the whole Mufti collaboration is a lot is made of that with, with the fascists and with Hitler. And it's important and a lot of stuff that's going on in Jewish politics and embrace of Zionism and embrace of support for Jewish statehood because of the Holocaust and the rep posts you know um the displaced person issue and so you have american jewish groups who are responding very negatively to um anti-zionist activism but aren't inherently calling anti-semitism they're saying you know maybe some of these people are fueled by anti-semitism maybe some of these people are, but it's 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 a distinction from what you see later like they're just they're saying that there's a connection but they're not they're not linking it in the same, they're not making an explicit statement. And then after 67, you sort of see a transformation um, where this term, the new anti-Semitism, comes about um, that sort of looks at sort of left-wing pro-Palestine rhetoric as something that's inherently sort of really part of the pro, like the anti-Semitism discourse. And, you know, it's like, is it inherent? Is it usually? Now you're seeing the discussions about that. But basically, I what I do is I don't make conclusions about what anti-Semitism is or what anti-Semitism isn't, but I historicize this in a way that I don't don't think many people have in the American setting in my books and and articles. Um, You asked about Spain. So he's not the only one he's you know the first ambassador. Um, there's a lot of Israeli diplomats a guy named and plus a guy named Joseph Shetman who writes a book um, on the Arab refugees that comes out before parents um, and the case that is made uh, that you're referring to is that um, all the Arabs uh, who became refugees all the Palestinian refugees fled their home and were told to leave by uh, other Arabs and we see that's not true. Um, we see that, you know, a good chunk uh, of Palestinian refugees were forced from their homes. We don't see this evidence, uh, obviously, of this mass push of people, Arabs, calling them to leave. But it became orthodoxy um, really early on in American Jewish. Uh, knowledge and so parrots. You know, people who don't like parrots are saying, you know, how can he say that there? Was, he doesn't have evidence of, of these things. Like, uh, you know, doesn't he know this is how it is? And parrots are the expert. He was there, and he's getting he's getting doubted because this. Um, narrative is, it, is is pushed through very, very quickly, including the fact, including like very early on that, you know, because Mizrahi Jews are coming in, that that sort of makes the Palestinian refugee issue like, um, you know, settled. Um, so it's amazing how quickly these discourses and how much they resemble stuff that you'll see today came up at like in 49, 50, 52, and, and the, the diet is just kind of set for what is correct information um, about what happened.
1: Now that you mentioned Mizrahi Jews, I, I I thought about this question, but I was not entirely sure about it. You know, your book really highlights the fact that most of the American Jewish organizations were run and led by Ashkenazi Jews, and I was wondering if you ever come across any Mizrahi Jew in America with some public cruel, uh, given that Peretz is actually Sephardic Jews. So th- there's a distinction there and, and half, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, Paris is a great
2: example of someone who is, you know, of Middle Eastern or half of Middle Eastern or, you know, whatever you would call it, someone whose family spent 500, 400 years there. Um, but there's not a lot. I mean, it's, 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 you know, maybe some people have some Sephardic roots. A guy named Lazarone, who I opened up the chapter, is Sephardic, but not Mizrahi. No, I mean, most, there's now a, a, a strong contingent of people with influence. Um, there's a guy named Elyushar, who I'm interested in, who did some stuff. Um, But again, I think he's of, you know, Eretz Israel and like maybe of Sephardic. Um, um, But this is Ashkenazi establishment, and it still is to a lot of ways in America. But a big part of that's sheer numbers, frankly. It's not, um, um, especially during this time period. My next actually, big shout out for my next project is going to be American Jewish engagement with Mizrahi, Middle Eastern Jewish issues from the '40s to '70s. So, you know, any scholarship being touched about that thing because uh, that's a fascinating uh, for me. Um, and there is some sort of engagement with these uh, with these questions, um, but not by people who are of the region
1: themselves. Yeah, that, that's a fascinating topic. Obviously, looking forward to the book, given that uh, Mizrahs are slowly regaining a position. Uh, certainly in Israel, in Israeli society, given again the sheer number of now uh, they represent uh, in, in Israel. Uh, but that's a discussion for another day. And, and I want to move forward and talk about uh, one of the few women that are mentioned in the book. And uh, I found her fascinating um, Dorothy Thompson. She's a famous journalist who radically changed her views on uh, Israel after a trip. Around the country. And that reminded me of a contemporary journalist, uh, Peter Beinert, who was a ardent Zionist pro Israel supporter uh, of the New York Times, who underwent a similar process, became, you know, has become in the last uh, few years a very vocal critic of of Israel. So, can you just tell us a little bit more about uh, Dorothy Thompson? Yeah, she's one of the most
2: popular columnists in America, like top three or top five. She is the second most respected woman in the country in a a certain poll after Eleanor Roosevelt. You know, Um, but again, that almost underwrites her because she's such an important columnist. Early, early critic of Hitler in the 30s. She is a hero to the American Jewish community. She takes on Zionism. She is one of the most outspoken pro-Zionist voices in uh, early early to mid 40s and then she goes over there and she in the course of a couple of years there's a few articles by this on this by Green Walther and um, another scholar Walker Robbins um, on this shift and she goes you know 180, and she becomes within a few years one of the most outspoken pro-Palestinian voices narrates the first movie uh, documentary on refugees you can see it on YouTube um, Sands of Sorrow um and becomes involved in this sort of network of people, um, who are who are talking about these issues and becomes very very unpopular, um, amongst Jewish organizations except for the anti-Zionist American Council for Judaism, which highlights her and she says controversial stuff that they like, but that makes her, when when she says it as a non-Jew, it, it's you know viewed as anti-Semitic because it's pretty. Edgy stuff about just the nature of what Jewish loyalties and stuff. So I, I, I even view it as as problematic, um, frankly. Um, but she, it's it's an amazing tr- uh, uh, trajectory from going to someone who's so loved in American Jewish politics to someone who's so hated, and she becomes head of this. Um, CA-funded American friends of the Middle East. And, you know, her and Saig, um, people don't really, you know, know Saig's not a household name, but she's sort of this household name who is the face of it. Um, and it, it ruins her. It embitters her because she's subject to levels of attack by people that she's been friends with. And it's it's rough. It's interesting, the women in the, in the story before the 70s, when there were women in the, more active, are often either Israeli like these diplomats, the diplomat who's against Paris is Israel, or they're um, or they're Zionist, or they're non-Jewish. So she's non-Jewish, and it's, it's interesting that this cast of characters of anti-Zionist and non-Zionist that I mostly focus on, they, they're not as good at sort of working women in, uh, allowing women to be part of their movements as uh, the Zionists, because Hadassah is, of course, becoming this big thing. So if you want to talk about why Zionism succeeded, I think you need to look about where where women were allowed to, you know, really have a, a great role, and so, and where they, where they are. So it, 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 it's, it's fascinating, Thompson, both the absence of women in groups like the AJC.
1: The last two chapters are fascinating. At least I believe they can provide the basis to understand current trends in both Israeli and American politics in relation to Israel. So I want to straight go to the question, why would anti-Zionist support Israel? So the American
2: Council for Judaism, and sometimes it's called the ACJ, which is super confusing because it's not the AJC. It's anti-Zionist. It's kind of an offshoot that of classical reform anti-Zionist that basically say, Jews are not a nation, Jews are not a nation, Jews are a religion, and we're a religion, and we don't affiliate with this this movement. And so they emerged in the 40s, when Amer- early 40s, when the Holocaust is becoming news, and when more American Jews are supporting Jewish statehood. Um, and that's why they're focused, they're afraid of anti-Semitism coming out of this. They think that, you know, okay, when Israel does something bad, American Jews will pay the price, so we need to disaffiliate from this. Um, and they just, they just feel like uh, they don't want um, Judaism, so they, they, they push against Israel's creation, again, you know, trying to nudge Truman against it in, in forty eight, they fail. And that's sort of where the story, people think the story ends, but they continue in the 40s, in the 50s, and their focus is keeping American Jewish religious life the same like not having israel israeli culture Havana Gila like all these things that they think are foreign israeli pronunciation of hebrew like all this israeli cultural influence in american jewish life they're pushing back against it and they're traditional people in this sense um and they're concerned often these people are temperamentally conservative and so uh, and they they don't want uh American Ameri- the Zionist push for pro-israel foreign policy to hurt American foreign policy they don't want anyone to think that um, Jews are putting Israel first in in terms of foreign, American foreign policy questions and so some of them actually um you know ben-gurion and American Jewish um, Israeli diplomats understand that these aren't people who are focused on Israel. They're focused on American Jewish questions and so they actually try to meet and co-opt some of them and they meet with the the chairman and Ben-Gurion spends hours and hours with him and so they end up winning some of them over the direct the executive figure vice president director vice president berger ends up becoming friends with Sayeg and goes in the other direction becomes very pro palestinian but a lot of these anti zionists end up feeling like israel's okay like and and then when american once america once the christians have embraced uh israel like and once american foreign policy and Johnston have embraced israel why not you know they don't really care about the palestinians some of these anti zionists so um, they kind of dropped that, you know. Um, and so there, there are people who don't believe in Jewish nationhood. Um, there are people who want, don't want to speak Israeli as a part of Hebrew, but who, uh, you know, don't have a re- lose their reason for opposing Zionism. So um, Elmer Berger, the pro Palestine figure in this group, is sort of pushed out with some of his followers. And so he, after sixty-seven, is on his kind of on his own talking about this. And this is also when you have a new wave of people like Noam Chomsky and sort of left-wing Jewish critiques. You have um, groups like Merip, um, uh, which includes Jews, um, like secular, sort of pro-Palestine-oriented organizations. There's a, my my book is more focused on you know Jewish politics, but there's lots of Jews after sixty-seven who are supportive of Palestinian rights who are operating outside of the Jewish political spectrum. And you know, Michael Fishbox written about some of these people. Um, So I I, I end chapter with that, uh, five with that, and then in six I go into sort of the Jewish politics of this. and you have people who are advocating for the two state solution, what we now call the two state solution, out of a place of sometimes Zionism. And so chapter five is anti Zionist for Israel, chapter six is Zionist for Palestine, because some of these people who are pushing for, you know, this is. You know, Israel controls the territories, and so they think that the pro-Israel and pro-Jewish position is Palestinian statehood, which you'll be familiar with if you have paid attention to anything that's gone on in, in Jewish politics in recent decades. But that's something that emerged after 67. Peretz is kind of a senior figure who's involved in that, but it's really the younger kind of baby boomer generation who's leading it. Uh, Breit Ra. And,
1: and that's what I wanted to ask, because, you know, then you have this— um Title, which is fascinating, Zionists for Palestine. Where you focus on this organization, Breira, uh, which in Hebrew means uh, choice. Uh, and I was wondering if you can just, uh, you know, speak a little bit more about uh, who are the Zionists for Palestine, and also what is Breira and uh, what is, what are the goals of uh, this organization.
2: Yeah, not everyone in Berra, just want to mention not everyone in Berat is Zionist, not everyone would call themselves for Palestine, and same with the other chapter, not everyone, not all the anti-Zionists are for Israel. But um, you know, there's the people who are the people who found this group in 73, 74 are people who are very Jewishly engaged, very Jewishly educated. A lot of them spend time in Israel. Um, or meet people in the West Bank and basically get enchanted by the Israeli left. Some of them are Jewish Studies scholars who are in their 70s now. You'll see some names, Ian Lustig, uh, David Beale, uh, uh And uh, they um, come to the view that some on the Israeli left are uh, beginning to articulate. Um, that you know, Israel needs to deal with this Palestinian issue, that it can't occupy these lands forever, that the answer is negotiations, that the answer is autonomy or, or, or really probably statehood. And so um, there's this idea that Brehra, this first group, is this oh, it's this huge critique, it's these people distancing, people who don't understand Judaism or care about this, that they're getting influenced by the left, the new left, and these, you know, Chomsky, and really they're influenced by Israel. They're influenced by what they see over there. They're influenced by their understanding of Judaism. Um, And so they become a vocal group of, you know, uh, not a huge membership, 1500 is one number I've seen, but they're very active amongst people who are running Hillel's, people who are sort of in their 20s and 30s and this young uh, Havara movement and people who are very engaged in Jewish life and they do okay for a few years. And then um, the uh, their sort of heroes, Mati Paled, the kind of offshoot Israeli left, start actually negotiating with the PLO. And so a couple of their people are in this meeting, not just them, with two PLO moderates, uh, a guy named Sabri Jirias. She just, you know, he's still alive. I just <laughs> sent him my book because uh, I interviewed him, uh, Isam Sartawi. And um, it, it gets leaked by Israeli diplomats that there was this meeting um, and all the other people at the meeting, the organizations they work for, the ADL, the B'nai B'rith, AJC, they say, these meetings, is, you know, we disavow this meeting, the PLO is a problem, we, they should be isolated. And Berra responds, again, this wasn't the leaders exactly at the meeting, Max Tickton and Arthur Waskow, but they say, no, we can't disavow the idea of meeting with the PLO, PLO moderates. And so they become this even more of a lightning rod. Um, and there's this campaign against them. It's still kind of shadowy. Um, and they really get, um, you know, there's financial reasons that are compounded by these controversies that they fold in 77, 78. So I really try kind to of internationalize this story. It's part of Israeli left history, it's part of Palestinian history. And so, again, I approach this whole project as first a scholar of Israel, Palestine, and the Middle East. And then, uh, rather than approaching it from American Jewish history first, and so I kind of have a new angle. So unlike these other stories I tell, Chapter Seven, people know about Beria. I mean, historians know about Beria. I just sort of tell the story differently by, by 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 showing that it's it's the endpoint of this broader engagement. Like it's a it, it pivots into the modern sort of the modern engagement where you have terms like two-state solution, post sixty-seven. So, um, and there's a lot more people involved, and I female voices, which I yeah, I try to highlight there because I can't as much
1: in the 50s, unfortunately. So lastly, can you draw some conclusion about our Palestine question?
2: Some conclusion? Well, you know, I outlined sort of my main takeaways. Um, but I, I think oftentimes the American Jews who have gotten engaged and involved in these Palestinian issues have done so not from distance to Israel and Zionism, but by spending time over there and meeting Israelis. And I can't say that is I don't do social studies of the present, but I can say historically that, you know, these have been people who've gone over there and have been won over by the Israeli left, even when even when their fringe left. And um you know, there are people who've been often been very invested in in, in Jewish life and Jewish questions, so that's a big one. Um, two is that it's that's clashed with often Israeli state interest or what the people who are involved in Israel running the Israel state have viewed as their interests. Obviously, like, you know, it's hard to say what are Israeli interests, what are Jewish interests, what are American Jewish interests and are it's different than Israeli interest. I don't have a conclusion about that, but I think, you know. I really want people to get think more deeply about, you know, what what's Jewish safety, what's Jewish interest? Are are these ish, are, you know, are the goals and interests of different Jewish communities always the same? And what does it mean if you gloss those over all the time? Um so and yeah, lastly, I really I think chapter four and stag is important. Um he's this figure who's you know, people are starting to understand that he's a huge intellectual figure um, but in this sort of conversations uh, in the 50s I'm able to show that these are hard questions. How does a Palestinian advocate for himself and his cause without being accused of anti-Sem- or be anti-semitic and he grapples with that and I show that in a real way and I show how the American Jewish groups are sort of end up in the position that they are even though some of them didn't want to uh, resisted sort of labeling in a way that uh, and, and pushing against them so I just think that just shows the complexity of these conversations because you're able to go into archival sources because you're able to show who people actually are um rather than you know just sound bites and you know um and yeah so I guess that's I don't know if those are conclusions but those are things that I'm thinking about and that I you know hope people will be thinking about when they read the book.
1: I'm curious about American Jews after October 7th. Can you give us a sense of the various trends, unifying factors and divisions among this uh, community?
2: Well, I think it's it's just incredibly emotionally intense uh, across the spectrum. Um, And there's different directions people are being pushed in. And people are often pushed in more than one direction at one time, and they might not articulate that. Um, You know, I think... You know, as a teacher to many Jewish students and someone who's on campus and someone who's Jewish myself, you know, um, people were surprised that there wasn't certain sympathies after October 7th and uh, that there was sort of really harsh things uh, rhetoric um, and silence from some friends and I'm seeing that that push in a lot of Jews and again young Jews who I engage with more in sort of a more communalist agenda uh, a direction of feeling like Jewish unity or feeling like we only have each other of like the world is unfair on one on one hand and so I think this is going to make an impression on younger Jews um, in that direction on the other hand, images we're seeing out of gaza like the rhetoric we're seeing out of is, is really right um it's very upsetting to a lot of these younger liberal uh, jews and all, really a lot a lot of jews um regardless of you know what sort of justifications come out what you're not getting you know not, people aren't even clear on what correct information is so there's lots of dizzying things on that when different american jews are getting different like Facts, <laughs> um, but for, regardless of that, it's it's very troubling, um, and so. Uh, and, and and some feel stifled uh, who have certain opinions on either side, especially on the pro-palestine side. So I think you're seeing people who are going to be more troubled with their relationship with Israel. Like a lot of Jews are going to be more troubled by what's going on um, in the long run and short run. And a lot of one of them will be uh, feel like they are more closely intertwined with America with Jewish politics and those are overlapping. You know there's some people who would just be more troubled, and some who would just be more sort of insular but there's a big chunk of people who will be both and that's going to be um very uh emotionally t- challenging um especially you know i don't think things are going to suddenly become better uh in the next few weeks this is something that's going to last a while so yeah
1: yes as a jewish adjacent person i'm not jewish myself but my entire family is and i live in an environment that is branded by you know sort of judaism in many different ways i i, I saw october 7 as this unifying factor but only for a very limited time because then all, all of a sudden you know whatever was coming out of uh, gaza but also in terms of uh, understanding the events and understanding of a bigger picture brought once again the community to divide itself but my impression was that it was even more visceral than before. And you know, I really saw people bitterly arguing over, you know, not October 7 itself, but the, the day after and, you know, what's next and so forth. And, then, and, and, and this is like just my view, as I said, being adjacent and not being part of a community.
2: I mean, every everything's more intense. I have a you know, friends who families have live in Gaza and it's they've been displayed. Like and I think about it all the time. And I also think about Israeli stuff and the future of stuff that's over there and the thousands and thousands of people who are getting killed and You know, I'm obviously more engaged as a scholar of these things, but you know, the students are, you know, you know, again, not to overemphasize on students because I think there has been too much emphasis on on, you know, students as the only people out there. But I obviously engage with them a lot, and you know, people know Palestinian. You know, people are connected to people on both sides, and it's very hard to grapple with with this. Um,
1: So yeah. Let me ask about campuses, because my perception of the media was that they put universities and campuses at the very center of uh, debates regarding, you know, pro-Israel, pro-Palestinian sentiments, uh, debates about anti-Semitism. And I was wondering, you know, what's your take? How do you see the contemporary debates, particularly over anti-Semitism in American campuses?
2: yeah you know one thing that's just ironic about this whole thing on on campuses is campuses are the one place where you can actually take a class from experts on these things and actually not engage in a world of tweets and TikToks and and think more thoughtfully and that's you know what i try to do in in my classes so it's so Um, unfortunate that that's sort of what's what's come out and um also very interesting that activism on campuses is uh, by students has also often been so inward um sort of on convincing people maybe on campuses when there's so many political figures and so forth that are far more influential and so that's been interesting um you know uh, it's been super hard for people like for muslim students for jewish students for israeli students um uh, and I don't want to use, you know, um, for Palestinian Arabs, like I don't want to diminish that at all, both because of real Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, because of anti-Palestinian rhetoric, um, and so forth, and also just the climate of fear and concern that's affected so many people about speaking. Um, the, um, I think, you know, the book deals with a lot of ways to, that people have, Process this and really thought more thoughtfully about um, what it means to make claims about Jewishness and Jewish identity. Um, so, and sort of how hard it is. And so, to be a Palestinian or be someone advocating for Palestinians about these issues. Um. So I think there's definitely a big connection between this all, and also just uh, a reminder that these issues go back to the '50s, and that there have been political actors, including people in Congress, going back to '57, '58, that have been having other goals. Um. uh, You know, someone was running for Senate in '58 and becomes makes this a big issue, Uh, not even about anti-Semitism, about the Cold War. So um it's it's honestly so much for me to process as the author of a book like this and i engaged in it so uh, i'll kind of leave you with that
1: and lastly i really want to ask about uh, american jews do, do you think american jews have a role to play in a future uh, peace process plan uh day after you know after the end of the, the gaza war is there any role they can actively play um you know
2: i it's kind of an encouraging i'm on, on one hand i hope the book's inspiring to people who are you know interested in these issues the and it's very discouraging because everyone no one's successful in it um and i don't know if there's a one single lesson that one can drive of it um you know i i don't think that uh americans of any persuade uh american activists will Uh, will be at the forefront of any change, but uh, they can support those who are, whether that's uh, Israelis or Palestinians uh, who have a specific vision that Americans, Jews or others want to support and emphasize and amplify, or policymakers, certain administrations, um, you know, internationally, um, where there's going to be real sort of influence or push. Uh, There's been times in the past when there's been efforts to do that, and um, you know, it's it's really, we might, we quote, any Americans of any persuasion might have our vision for what's going on there, but those of us who don't live there will have far less influence um, than those who do and and those who are affected by it um, every day. That's not to dis- diminish or disempower people, but just recognize the reality that, uh, you know, going back to the AJC and American health and this is the country we're living in, um, and we have certain... Powers and obligations and uh, agency here that we just, even as powerful as America might be, we we don't have the same on as people over there over their own future. So, yeah.
1: This was uh, Jeffrey Levin, author of Our Palestine Question: Israel and American Jewish Descent, nineteen forty eight to nineteen seventy eight, published by Yale University Press in twenty twenty three. Jeffrey, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Roberto. Grazie. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram,
0: Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time.